I'm curious, why is it so important to understand the historical context of relationships and marriage? If we're going to live in this world, getting a sense of how marriage has changed and how we can make ours as strong as possible is likely to have more bang for the buck in terms of your overall happiness with your life than pretty much anything else you can do. I'm Cody Goff from Curiosity.com. Today we're going to learn about marriage in the modern era. Every week we explore what we don't know because curiosity makes you smarter. This is the Curiosity Podcast. Conventional wisdom says that the institution of marriage in America has seen better days. But has it really? According to my guest this week, the best marriages today may be the best marriages ever. Dr. Eli Finkel returns to the Curiosity Podcast to explain his recent research and talk about how to find success in marriage or in any serious long-term relationship. Dr. Finkel is a professor at Northwestern University, where he has appointments in the psychology department and the Kellogg School of Management, and he's been writing about relationships for more than a decade, from attraction to dating to marriage and everything in between. Now, last time we discussed today's dating scene, so this time we'll delve into more serious relationships and how they've evolved into what they are today— and how to have a good one. I'm here with Dr. Eli Finkel, and you've got a book that just came out called The All or Nothing Marriage, which we'll talk about in a bit. Why did you choose this particular path of study? Of the entire spectrum of things that one could do with one's life, it's hard to imagine choosing anything else other than this. And it is funny because I, I think most of us grow up thinking that well, not thinking about it at all. But if you think about it, you think, well, that's not possible. You can't sort of study relationships for a living. Um, but I remember my my 10-year high school reunion when I told people what I was doing. I was back at Northwestern by that time. And everybody thought, yeah, that seems like just the right fit for you. So I'm delighted. It, it's it's a really fun thing to do. My, my job is quite literally to, to try to ask questions that people haven't answered about how relationships work and then develop clever ways to try to study those questions and then teach about it. And you don't just mean dating and marriage relationships. You mean all kinds, friends, neighbors? Yes. I'm interested broadly in relationships. For my money, there are extra elements of what we might call romantic relationships that are especially interesting. So I, I, I do think it's fun to think about how people navigate high levels of intimacy when there's challenges in terms of sexuality, right? And those are the sorts of interesting additional issues that tend to come up in romantic relationships that come up less frequently with your neighbor. If Tinder was around in 1950 and I went on a date with a girl, I'd pay. I'd pay for the check. I'd right. pick her up probably with my really hot car and I'd, I'd drop her off after. Large backseat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, all that stuff, you yeah. know, bring, bring her out to lookout points or whatever. Yeah. But now, even when I was in 2011, 2012, I would have hot debates in the lunchroom at work with who pays on the date, who asks what. And it's a lot more confusing. That's totally right. Hey, Ashley here. Despite the fact that times are changing and we're all independent working women who don't need no man... The data shows that when it comes to who pays on a date, gender roles are still alive and well. A 2017 survey from the Time publication Money showed that 72% of women and 85% of men still think that the man should cover the check on the first date. But it's not just first dates. A 2014 NerdWallet survey found that out of 1,000 people living with their partner, only a third split household expenses equally. More than 35% of the men said that they pay 100% of the bills. So is this good or bad or neither? Yes. 
I mean, you know, it's funny because, I mean, you know, we haven't delved into to marriage per se yet, but the name of the book is The All or Nothing Marriage. And, and the question that you're getting to gets to another sort of all or nothing way of thinking about these things is we have fewer rules. I mean, psychologists sometimes use the phrase scriptlessness, right? We don't actually know. Like, like it was clear that like he showed up in the car and then she got in, you know, he walked around and opened the door and then they got to the restaurant and, you know, they looked at the menus and then at the end he, he paid. And then maybe as he walked her in, he got a peck on the cheek for the first date or something. There were rules and and norms that really help people understand how you were supposed to interact in a given situation. And those things are immensely valuable, but they're also immensely constrictive, right? So you know what you're supposed to do on a date, and that is deeply comforting, right? You play your role, she plays her role, everybody knows what to do, and that's fine. On the other hand, you might want a little bit of autonomy. You might want a little bit of, of banter, a little bit of playfulness, a little bit of, hey, why, don't, why not have sex on the first date? Or why not not peck on the cheek after the first date, right? There's a broad range of decisions that we can make. These days, we have a great deal of freedom. And with freedom comes responsibility, comes a, a an increased likelihood of doing the wrong thing for this particular person. And, and sometimes those wrong things, even though they're benign, get interpreted and morally uh, freighted language, right? So, so the conclusion of all of this is, yes, it's hard to live in an era where the social rules, the social norms are more ambiguous, that they're more ad hoc or, you know, each person chooses his or her own. But they do offer you the freedom to connect in a different sort of way. And that that affords the ability to have a, a deeper sort of connection, perhaps earlier than would have existed when people were following the social roles. Has any of your research tried to quantify the cost benefit of these freedoms? No. I mean, the brief answer is no. But but the general conclusion is similar to what I was saying moments ago, which is that the the people who figure it out, the, the people who are able to take this freedom and create their own idiosyncratic uh, relationship orientation, a way of connecting to each other, have marriages that are, are profoundly fulfilling and, and profoundly fulfilling in a way that would have been difficult if all the rules and structures were laid out for us and we were sort of following a set of procedures, but that more of us are struggling to figure out what is the right way to behave and what is the right way to behave with this person on date six. And because of that, it's harder to get into like a pretty good relationship, but it affords the possibility of something special, something distinctive and unique that, that really works for us, just the two of us, in a way that was harder to do when there were stricter rules. And are you focused on heterosexual or 2017? There's all kinds of lifestyles now. Has it made your research a lot harder? Yes. I mean, so in answer to your first question, I'm not focused on heterosexual relationships. So when the opportunity presents itself, I think it's interesting to compare to, say, lesbian, gay relationships, straight relationships, other types of relationships. In reality, as a practical matter, it turns out you have to be really, really interested in studying for example, gay or lesbian relationships, if you want to be able to draw conclusions about how those relationships differ or are similar to uh, heterosexual relationships. And the reason why is sample recruitment. So if you want to recruit 100 couples, it's quite easy to do. You want to recruit 100 gay couples, 100 lesbian couples, and 100 uh, heterosexual couples. You now have an enormously ambitious, expensive study. And that's certainly worth doing if one of your major interests is to figure out how different types of relationships of those sorts uh, are similar versus different. But if your major questions are not really about that, you usually will find yourself being on the lazy side and recruiting the sample that's easier to get. 
I would imagine you could find 100 couples of any disposition in a major city like New York or L.A. or Chicago. Is the problem the lack of geographical diversity then? The problem, you're right. It's not hard to find 100 lesbian couples, right? That's true. But the process of recruiting couples, maybe getting them into the lab, and then ideally most of my, at least most of my more ambitious research is, is longitudinal. And it turned, by that I mean multiple assessments over time. So you might do, for example, every four months for two years, right? And it turns out to be fairly expensive and challenging to be able to recruit that many couples, heterosexual or otherwise. And because you start with a smaller pool of non-heterosexual people, it, it turns out that it actually isn't easy to recruit 100, say, lesbian couples to do a longitudinal uh, study of relationships that last several years. And it also can be expensive to be able to do it. Interesting. I just think about how we haven't figured out the silver bullet for heterosexual relationships. And we have millennia of data, yeah. right? The amount of data has got to be really limited when it comes to any non-heterosexual couple. Agreed. Uh, there are... Uh I should be clear that although I haven't done that much research on non-heterosexual relationships, I've done a little. There are scholars for whom those are their major research questions, assessing the similarities and differences among these various sorts of relationships. And the take-home lesson on that research thus far is that relationships among gay men or relationships among lesbians are by and large very similar to relationships among heterosexuals. It's not that they're the same, right? Because, for example, especially in the past, but to some degree still, there are major um, stigmas associated with non-heterosexual relationships. So they confront different sorts of issues, different sorts of stressors. But then if you were to say, okay, well, those are those are different sorts of stressors, or they might have a high, higher level of stressors than the average heterosexual relationship. But how does stress affect the relationship? relationship, that's similar. Do you follow me? So that the major processes, at least as far as we know thus far, you're right that the, the, the data and the evidence isn't that extensive thus far. But as far as we can tell to date, the way relationship dynamics work tend to be relatively similar across the various, you might say, types of relationships, with one major exception, which is that gay men tend to be looser about sexuality, all else equal, than heterosexual men or uh, lesbian women, primarily because both of those types of relationships have a woman in them. So there's a lot of changes in the types of couples getting together. There's also a lot of social changes. When we talk about roles in relationship, the traditional provider slash homemaker role is getting totally upended. Is that changing the psychology of relationships and marriages? Yeah, hugely. I mean, this is one of the issues that, that I tackled most directly in the book. I think this is one of the more interesting issues facing relationships researchers today is how is it that changing gender dynamics influence relationships? Are relationships getting better? Are relationships getting worse? Are relationships getting more complicated? And it turns out that the answers to every one of those questions that I listed and a whole range of other questions are really interesting and not totally straightforward. Uh, one thing I want to say right from the start is we think of the 1950s as being traditional relationship as as if you could take 1950s and extend it back for millennia and they would all look like Leave it to Beaver, right? But that is not remotely true. And, and in fact, um, the historian Stephanie Kuntz does a great job of really sort of shaking us out of that bizarre assumption that the 1950s model is the traditional marriage and that everything should be evaluated as a deviation from that. The name of her book is The, the Way We Never Were. And she has to remind us, I mean, you know, she has to remind us that, that Leave it to Beaver was not a documentary. It just so happens that there was a, a, a very, very idiosyncratic, highly historically unusual way of approaching relationships in the 1950s when television came on. And because that's when television came on, it got imprinted 
imprinted in the cultural psyche as as if this were traditional. But the idea that there would be a man who like kissed his wife and then went off to the office and a woman who said, love you, honey, see you when you're back and took took care of the home. That was like an eye blink in history. Right. First of all, before the Industrial Revolution in the mid 1800s, people didn't go off to work. The individual farmhouse was the unit of economic production. This is how people made ends meet. Both men and women contributed hugely to economic production. And it wasn't until you got industrialization and this specialization that that you got these weird or I'm sorry, these highly gendered social roles like his sphere is work and her sphere is home. So that was unusual right from the start. Stephanie Kuntz points out that the nuclear family of the 1950s was actually a backlash against the dismal living situation and housing shortages of the Great Depression and post-war America. She writes that by 1947, six million American families were sharing housing and family counselors were worried about what those arrangements would do to marriages. As soon as the country hit a period of prosperity in the 1950s, couples moved en masse into single family homes and started putting new importance on marriage and the nuclear family. As Kuntz writes about that decade, quote, For the first time in more than 100 years, the age for marriage and motherhood fell, fertility increased, divorce rates declined, and women's degree of educational parity with men dropped sharply, end quote. How about gender roles over time otherwise? You mean since the 1950s? Since the 1950s. Yeah, that, that is what I think is especially interesting. So, so the convergence of the roles of men and women is probably the single biggest social change that we've seen over the last 50 years, maybe even the last 100 years. The the um, Harvard economist Claudia Golden refers to this as the grand gender convergence. And most of us focus on gender differences, right? So we, it's very easy for us to think about the ways that men and women's roles and men and women's tendencies today differ. And there certainly are some gender differences. It's, it's not that women are treated identically to men. It's not that men behave in the same way as women all the time. But if you talk about the roles that different people play in society, so for example, do you go off to work? Do you earn a paycheck? Do you change diapers? The dominant thread, the dominant social trend that has happened in the last 50 years, maybe even more than that, is that the roles of men and women are more similar than they were in the past. So he, in a marriage, let's say a heterosexual marriage, much more than in the past. I mean, we, we can go back two generations and our grandparents never changed a diaper. Our grandfathers never changed a diaper, right? And our grandmothers never had a career. But now, most of the people we know, she's got a career. He does diapering. It's not that he does the same number of diapers as she does. But people increasingly have a better sense of this person who sits across the dinner table from me. I have a better sense of what that person goes through in terms of her everyday life, in terms of his everyday life, relative to what people would have had, say, in the 1950s. So since maybe a wife is going off to work, even part time, let's yeah. say she's able to empathize and kind of put herself in the same shoes as her husband, who's maybe working full time or vice versa. Either yeah. way. Yeah. He has some sense of the anguish that comes when you're 70 nights into sleeplessness, when you have a newborn and, you know, you got the kid down 10 minutes ago and then you hear the scream. Right. Like the, there's there were experiences that were really difficult for husbands and wives to understand about each other's daily lives when we had this really weirdo 1950s social structure where he had his sphere of, of existence and he was he was assertive but certainly wasn't nurturing and she was nurturing but certainly wasn't assertive and they sort of connected across that divide and they did love each other. I mean loving and cherishing these were part of it but, but deep understanding like d deep real sense of what the other person's day-to-day -day life was like that was hard to come by. How are apps like Tinder and Bumble and whatever else is out there, how are these affecting? Haven't they created a new problem in the overabundance of availability of dates? 
Yeah, this is something that, that I find especially fascinating. So, so I believe the logic of your question is knowing that I can literally reach into my pocket and within a matter of seconds be browsing potential dates, right? How does that affect how we go about dating? And the reality is nobody has the definitive answer. There's no world where people were randomly assigned to like Tinder exists versus Tinder doesn't exist. My intuition, and I'll, I'll back this up with what I consider to be reasonable evidence, is it does affect how willing we are to go on a second date with somebody we were like, eh, like maybe, you know, I don't know. You know, I think we're more likely to say, nah, can't be bothered and start swiping right again. This relates to a phenomenon known as the paradox of choice, which you can read about on Curiosity.com. It says that as the number of available options increases, your satisfaction decreases. That's according to a study from the year 2000, which found that grocery shoppers who sampled jams from a display of six were more likely to buy one than those who saw a display of 24. There's been some controversy over that particular study, and more research since then has found that people are only happier with fewer choices in certain circumstances. We're happier with two options than one, for example, and if you put a bunch of options into categories, you can ease people's so-called choice paralysis. So, is the flood of options on dating sites making us more or less satisfied? That's an open question. But there's a second question, which is once you've actually formed a relationship, how perilous is it that you have the world's biggest uh, singles club, whatever, in your pocket? How threatening is that to an ongoing relationship? And here's where I think I'm much more optimistic than anybody I've heard talking about this stuff. What people don't appreciate is the extent to which falling in love and being committed to a partner makes you turn off the plausibility of other people being partners for you. Now, I'm not saying there is no infidelity. I'm not saying that we're never tempted by other people. But here, here's an example of the sort of research that I find reassuring. So they take people, there's a bunch of studies like this now. They take people who vary in how committed they are to their current relationship. And they show them one of two dating profiles, like online dating profiles. One is rigged to be extremely appealing. So the photo is hot. The interests are cool. And one is rigged to be not especially interesting. So it turns out that, that uh, among people who aren't especially committed to their current partner, when you ask them, like, how much do you think you would enjoy being with this other person? Those people who aren't especially committed to their current partner say, that one person would be amazing, but the other one doesn't seem that great. But that difference, that ability to be sensitive to who's actually like a really appealing partner, that seems to disappear among people who are highly committed. And in fact, the tendency to say, no, I probably wouldn't really be interested in that person, tends to be higher to the degree that the person is more appealing. That is, we tend to be pretty good. You recognize, of course, some objective quality that this person is attractive or whatever, but your assessment of like, I could be happy in a relationship with that person, when we're really committed, it's those times when we're threatened, when, when we know like this is a person who could actually threaten us, that we say, nah, I really shouldn't do that coffee date, even though it's just a, a friendly thing. We guard our relationship against these sorts of threats. And if you're guarding your relationship against these sorts of threats, does it make a difference if the threat is one person versus one million people? Probably not. So it's really more of an issue if there's already a crack in the windshield. Yes. So let's kind of bring it back around to the all or nothing marriage. I know that you kind of start out with saying, well, my whole perception of my idea of what's good or bad or what's historically accurate about marriage has been totally shattered. Yeah. So what happened? I set out to test or examine the hypothesis that I was calling the freighted marriage hypothesis. The, the idea being we're just asking more and more and more all the time. And 
And the argument was, and that's bad. And more of our partners? Yes, sorry. More and more and more of our spouses, of our of our romantic partners. That is the number of roles that this one person has to play has gone stratospheric. Um, you know, and and it would have been sort of silly in 1950 to hear or unexpected to hear somebody say, well, I'm marrying you because you're my best friend. That wasn't the role that that people played. Right. It was they had separate roles. And, and to a large extent, they had separate social lives. And and over the last 50 years or 60 years, we've piled on more and more expectations and responsibilities on this one relationship. And meanwhile, the size of our intimate social networks, the, the the number of people that we confide in regularly, the number of hours that we spend engaging with other family members or friends, all of these things have gone down. So my thesis when I started this whole book project was that I was going to conclude that we are harming marriage by asking all this stuff. And I think the logic was sound. But when I actually started reading the history, I'm not a historian, right? And I read the history and I really understood, started to understand what, what daily life was like for the pilgrims or, or in 1800 um, and in 1950, I started to realize that there are massive ways that we're asking much less. And I don't think I'd heard anybody talking about that, right? So, so, so for example, in 1800, People look to their spouse for survival, right? I, I'm not exaggerating when I say life was precarious in a way that it isn't today. I know that it's not nice to be poor today. I do understand that. But I assure you that the likelihood of dying early through disease or death or injury was massively, massively higher. Just play Oregon Trail. The, exactly. Just play Oregon Trail and you'll start to get a sense of how bad it really was. So in that era, what did people look for from a spouse? Well, they certainly weren't looking for some profound sense of personal fulfillment. They weren't even really looking for love. I mean, by, by that time, by the 17 and 1800s, the idea of marrying for love had been around for a while in the in the Enlightenment era and then the Romantic era. The idea, like, wouldn't it be awesome if we could, like, marry for love? Like, that idea was around, but it was impractical. I, I mean, as I said, the individual harm, farmhouse was the unit of economic production. Most people married somebody who was like a few streets down at most from where they grew up, sometimes on the same street. And and the idea that you'd have a bunch of choice and you'd make this, um, you know, you, you try to marry to have this sense of personal fulfillment, that wasn't what people did. And if you said that's what you were going to do, you may well have been laughed out of your colonial hamlet. So fast forward and there's the Industrial Revolution and, and in let's call it the 1850s and beyond – Suddenly, there's a surfeit of jobs in in major urban centers, and people come from rural areas, they come from overseas, and for the first time ever anywhere, young people are geographically and economically independent of their parents. And for the first time ever, they start to say, huh, I have some say over whom I marry. And what do they say? They want to marry for personal fulfillment. And in particular, they decide they want to marry for love. And so they set out to build what we now know is like the breadwinner, homemaker, love-based marriage, this thing that over the next hundred years reached its peak in the, in the 1950s with, you know, Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best. And yes, the idea here is we don't really need to marry for basic survival any longer. Um, single people can make it. It's not literally life-threatening to be single. So we want to marry for a sense of fulfillment and love. But then in the 1960s, that, that became stifling, right? That, that it wasn't sufficient anymore, that people adhered to these strict social roles and that they wanted, and what they decided is they wanted a sense of fulfillment through their marriage beyond just love. And so for the first time anywhere, you start hearing things, especially more recently, like 
he is a wonderful man, and I admire him, and I respect him, and he's a good dad, but I feel stagnant and stifled in the relationship, and I'm not going to live the next 40 years of my life like that. And these days, that's not an uncommon thing to say, and, and I guess each of your listeners can decide for him or herself, is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? For my money, it just is, right? Like it, it, it is both a good thing and a bad thing because it makes marriage much more fragile. It makes it much harder to be able to achieve this level of psychological fulfillment, this not only that we continue to love each other and that the sex remains strong for a long time, but that you help me grow toward the best version of myself, more and more marriages are falling short. But at the same time, and this was the real revolution in how I was thinking about this stuff, because we're seeking this deeper sort of psychological connection, this this self-expressive, I'm looking for you to help you grow into the best version of yourself, into the most self-actualized version of yourself, and you're helping me with those things, things that would have been down the list in 1800 or in 1950. And because we're looking for those things, some marriages are succeeding, and those marriages are better than the best marriages we've seen in earlier eras because you not only have this sense of love and connection, but you also have this sense of each person growing toward the ideal self, becoming a better, more refined, more polished version, more authentic version of the self, and doing that through their marriage, which means those marriages, that's the minority, but those marriages that are able to succeed as we look what you might call the top of Maslow's hierarchy towards self-actualization and so forth, those marriages are able to achieve a level of fulfillment that was largely unavailable in earlier eras. Thought I'd pop in and explain what Eli means by Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It was proposed in 1943 by Abraham Maslow, and it's basically the food pyramid of human happiness. At the bottom of the original hierarchy, you've got physiological needs like nutrition and sleep. Above that is basic safety, followed by the need to feel love and belonging followed by the need for a sense of self-esteem and accomplishment. At the very top, and what Eli's talking about in those superstar marriages, is self-actualization, where you achieve your full potential as a person. So part of the reason more marriages are failing is because the bar is so much higher. Yes, the bar is so much higher, but hitting that bar is so much more satisfying. That's cool. Well, we have a link in the show notes to pick up the All or Nothing Marriage, which is now out. And congratulations on getting that published. I want to wrap up really quick with a fast curiosity challenge, which is our final segment, where I'm actually going to give you a quick kind of trivia question first to see if I can teach you something since you have taught me so many things about relationships. For your question, I want to ask, there is something you can wear that actually makes you perceive yourself hotter and others perceive you as sexier as well. Can you tell me what type of clothing or what item that would be? Spanx. <laughs> Close? Um, I don't know. A tight shirt? Uh, no, actually. It is the color red. The color red. You can read about that on curiosity.com. But uh, researchers at the University of Zurich put people basically in front of a mirror and asked participants in one section to wear a red shirt or one wear a blue shirt ask them how attractive they perceive themselves and what do you know, red shirt and increases. That hasn't come up in any of your research on what kind of Tinder profile pictures do the best yeah. or online dating pictures? I actually do know. I, I had forgotten. I do know about that line of research and, and one of the major players in that space is, is a researcher at Rochester named uh, Andy Elliott. But there, yeah, there's a bunch of contexts in which Wearing a red shirt makes us feel more appealing, makes other people look at us more appealing. As often happens in science, there's like debate about the robustness of these sorts of effects. But but yes, I am actually tuned into that stuff. But I still think Spanx is the correct answer. <laughs> we'll go with that, too. Yeah. All right. And I believe you brought a question for me. I have one. I don't know if you're a sports fan. Mm, 
then you're going to struggle with this. So it turns out that in baseball, there is a statistic called total bases. And what it is, is over the course of a game or a season or something, you get a base for a single, two bases for a double, three bases for a triple, four bases for a home run. And so it turns out that every once in a while, somebody has a spectacular game, multiple homers and so forth. And it turns out that a couple people have gotten 18 total bases in a game, but only one person has gotten 19 total bases in a single game. One person in the history of baseball. Who was that person? I mean, the only names I'm even going to be able to come up with are Babe Ruth and Pete Rose. So let's go with Pete Rose. Uh, no, he had a lot of singles. So uh, the reason why this is fun for me was because it is my cousin. So Sean Green, I think in 2002. Really? Yeah, he set a record for the most overall total bases in a game. 19 total bases. Well, for what team? Uh, that was 2002, so that would have been for the Dodgers. And he hit four home runs, a double, and a single in six at-bats. No way. It's a big day. Well, congratulations Thank to you. him. Thank I mean, you. 15 years later. Yeah. No, I'm happy to be congratulated on that as if I did it. <laughs> Anytime. I'll yeah. congratulate you for wearing Spanx today, too. Oh, yeah. Really yeah, well, I mean, that. I should have probably worn something in addition to the Spanx. Well, you know, it's radio or yeah. podcast or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Well, the All or Nothing Marriage is out. This is, again, I was talking to Dr. Eli Finkel, Northwestern University professor. Thank you so much for spending. And Kellogg uh, School of Management, School of Management yeah. uh, professor. Thanks so much. Hey, I've got an extra credit question for you, courtesy of the Curiosity app. Everyone wants to be productive and successful, right? Well, when asked how to become more productive, billionaire Richard Branson has some advice. Here's your question. What two words sum up Richard Branson's secret to success? Here's a hint. It might help you in your relationship, too. The answer after this. Have you ever been listening to the Curiosity Podcast and wanted to share a clip on Facebook or Twitter? Well, here's some super exciting news. Now you can, thanks to Greta.com. That's G-R-E-T-T-A. You can stream our podcast on Greta.com slash curiosity, and their podcast player will follow along with a written transcript of each episode while you listen. When you hear a clip you want to share, just find it and click share. Greta will build a video for you to share with your friends so you can help spread the word about our podcast. Again, that's Greta.com slash curiosity. And drop us a line to let us know what you think of this super cool new service. You've heard me mention that you can email us at podcast at curiosity.com with any feedback about our episodes. And one listener did just that after Dr. Finkel's last appearance on our podcast from all the way down under in Australia. Carly writes, quote, I have never used online dating apps, but I met my boyfriend while playing virtual reality. I'm in Australia and he's in Utah. We met in February online and then met in person in May. It was an amazing experience, and we are crazy about one another. I'm coming to the U.S. in two weeks just to see him again. End quote. That is so cool, Carly. Congratulations on finding love online. It just goes to show that you never know where you're to find love. If you'd like to share your story or if you have any questions or comments for us, again, that email is podcast at curiosity.com. If you still don't have enough curiosity in your life, then why not check out our newsletter at curiosity.com email. We'll send you three bonus stories every week, plus exclusive features you won't find anywhere else. Just sign up at curiosity.com slash email and never stop learning. If you have an Apple ID and you get a chance, then please search for the Curiosity Podcast on iTunes and leave us a quick rating or a review. You can still listen to the show on your favorite app, 
Whether it's the Curiosity app or Stitcher or Google Play or SoundCloud or Podcast Addict or wherever else you listen. But those iTunes reviews are acutely helpful in allowing us to keep bringing you fresh episodes every week. So please take a second and do that if you can. Thank you if you've hit us up already. We really appreciate it. And I shall show my appreciation with today's extra credit answer. So what's Richard Branson's advice for becoming more productive? Two words, work out. In Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Body, he writes about an occasion where Branson claimed he can accomplish twice as much in a day by keeping fit. Science seems to agree that exercise is a good idea. One 2011 study found a correlation between going to the gym and a higher salary. Hmm, money. You can learn more about this and many other tips for success on the Curiosity app for your Android or iOS device. I'd like to take a moment to recognize Ashley Hamer for being an awesome editor and bringing some really intelligent commentary to every podcast. So thank you for that, Ashley. And you, listener, I want to thank you for listening. Because without you, I would just be talking to myself. Which, I mean, I might do anyway, but it would be harder to admit. Anyway, I'll talk to you and hopefully not just myself next week. For the Curiosity Podcast, I'm Cody Goth.